Chapter Seventeen of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Seventeen, The Rape of the Lock. Chloe had been delighted when she heard I was to be dressed like herself. I think she saw the possibility of tantalizing Morris Purvis. Jo helped us to dress, and when we were ready we stood side by side before the long glass while she tied on our masks. We saw two figures in deep rose tulle, the short skirts powdered with black pom-poms standing straight out from our waists. Two long pairs of legs were attired in black silk stockings and satin slippers with scarlet heels. On our arms we wore black gloves, and round our necks huge ruffs of frothing lawn. The curves of our two chins, just visible between the ruffs and the lace hanging from the masks, were decked with a black patch apiece. On our heads Napoleonic hats with gilt tassels hanging from their points were crammed down so that no pale gold or dull mouse locks were to be seen. Chloe laid hold of me and whirled me round. Give me the first dance, Viv, you must. We shall look simply adorable dancing together. Anything you like, if you'll let me go now. Here's poor Joe all undone down the back. Joe, you're a genius to have got yourself up like that. Joe was dressed as a gypsy and the tawny silks and dangling earrings gave full value to her clear brown skin and splendid teeth. She made Chloe and me look quite insignificant. In the daytime she is plain, for her figure is on the big scale that looks clumsy in a shirt and short skirt, but splendid in softer garments. Her face is of the Slav type, which, with the right lighting and shadows on it, is, to my mind, the most fascinating of all. Very broad across the low brow and prominent cheekbones, the mouth big and set a shade further in between the short tip-tilted nose and cup-shaped chin than is usual. It is a type in which the tameness of the even-coloured skin and muddy brown eyes does not matter because all the construction of the head is so sound, with every bone in its right place. I kissed the back of her short, strong neck as I finished pinning the kerchief down, and we all three went into the studio, where Peter got up as a pickpocket, with a teaspoon poking out from the crown of his hat, and his pockets bulging with spoons and watches, was paring candle-ends over the floor and rubbing them in with a foot lost in the throes of a huge carpet-slipper. Chloe took off her mask when the guests began to arrive, whispering in my ear. I'll put it on again after. There's someone I rather want to confuse. She broke off, and I knew without Joe's gentle pinch of my elbow that the villain of the piece had made his entry. He came straight across to Chloe, and taking up her hand, kissed it. There was an audacity about the action, 
that was its own excuse. Then, as he turned to Joe, he caught sight of me. I had my mask on, and for a moment he looked from me to Chloe. Then a light of pure enjoyment leapt into his eyes. Chloe slipped on her mask and came to stand beside me, saying demurely, Viv, let me introduce Mr. Purvis, my friend Miss Lovell. Mr. Purvis bowed his hand to his black leather coat. He was dressed as a chauffeur, and I had to admit that the plain garb suited his fair, sleek, good looks remarkably well. Anyone less like the conventional villain to look at than Morris Purvis it would have been hard to find. He was inclined to be a shade too plump, and on the boyish pink and white of his face the heavy wrinkles looked oddly out of place, while his eyes shone blue and very charming from their sagging lids. He was one of those people who on nothing but a well-cut chin and a high forehead, from which the hair is brushed straight back foreign fashion, give a decided impression of cleverness. No, said Chloe, in reply to his request for the first dance. I'm having it with Miss Lovell. Come, Viv. I put my arm round her waist and swept her away, leaving Mr. Purvis rather sulkily dangling his programme. If it had not been for my anxiety about Mrs. Murdoch and Chloe, I should have enjoyed that evening. Joe, Peter and I had to take it in turns at the piano, but he and I always danced together when she was playing, and all my other partners were good. Mr. Purvis claimed me for a waltz under the impression that I was Chloe, but I answered him in my natural voice to undeceive him. It would make my imitation of Chloe's tones the more convincing if I should have to try it. It must have been just before midnight, for the order to unmask had not yet come, when Joe, Chloe, and two other girls who had been practising it with them during the week formed all the guests in lines behind them for the lighted torch dance. Everyone was provided with a torch of sorts, mostly candles in half-bottles, which make excellent draught-proof holders some with Chinese lanterns. For the first three figures the processions kept themselves unmixed and turned in and out, waving their lights and shouting. Then all became a scene of wild confusion, each person stamping, yelling, and rushing about. Every now and then came a crash of breaking glass as something was swept down by the stampede. The floor shook and swayed, and little gusts of flame soon danced out, sprang up here and there where a lantern had swung from its owner's grasp. I rattled away energetically at the piano, and almost felt I had the best of it, for from the piled height of two model thrones, where I and my instrument were perched, the whole affair looked splendid a living medley of lights and streaming colours like some bright bacchanalian orgy. I caught sight of Peter, whose lantern had gone out, 
squishing it to and fro like a concertina as he pranced along. From his mouth four lighted cigarettes spread out fanwise. Groups of three or four people linked arm in arm went swinging round, kicking wildly and giving short high whoops, while others, with a more deadly ingenuity, were aiming chocolates down the yawning jaws of the gramophone, which, I may mention in passing, has never been the same bright young creature since. After these energetic efforts, comparative peace reigned while the dancers sat round on the floor in circles and began on the supper. I was tired after my long spell of playing, and also, to tell the truth, excessively sleepy, for I was beginning to feel the strain that the day had been. I refused Joe's and Peter's invitation to join them at their supper circle, because I saw Chloe and Mr. Purvis had slipped away out of the studio during the confusion. I went out to the head of the ladder-like stairs that led down from the hen-coop into a confusion of harness and stable appurtenances. The Chinese lanterns had burned themselves out, and the place was in darkness except for the moonlight that shone in through the open top half of the door below. I sat down on some sacks that had been comfortably arranged by the head of the stairs, and taking off my mask, fanned my hot face with it. At that moment I heard Chloe's voice from the foot of the ladder, and her first words robbed me of any scruple in listening. "'Oh, Morris, I can't come. I daren't,' she said. And there was a thrill of excitement and longing in her hushed voice. "'My dear child, why ever not? Can't I take my little friend Chloe for a spin in the moonlight, without any harm?' just down to Kew to see the moon on the river, and then back again. We should only be gone an hour or so. They won't break up here till four or five. We should be back before then. We can go just as we are, masks and all, and pretend we're highwaymen. Say yes, Chloe. Suppose we had a breakdown, objected Chloe. We couldn't have. I've heaps of petrol, and the car's running like a bird. I thought you'd enjoy it. So I should, but... But what? Chloe, won't you think of me for once? Just because I can't have what I want, mayn't I have anything at all? Little Chloe, why are you afraid of our friendship? Something tells me it mayn't be quite that on my side. Perhaps not. A man's a man, Chloe, but mayn't you be all the more sure, since there is that something else in my thoughts of you, that I wouldn't do anything to hurt or vex you. Oh, you horrid, mean, clever man, breathed I in the darkness. But what would Joe and Viv say, murmured Chloe. Miss Nash would be so pleased to see you coming back all the better for the fresh air that she wouldn't say anything. As for your little friend Viv, is she as puritanical as she looks? Viv? Oh, no. But she's odd. 
I mean she'd never think any harm of me, but she'd be furious with you. I think I can survive it, replied Mr. Purvis with a little laugh, and I swore to have his blood. There was a slight rustle at the foot of the stairs as the two conspirators stood up, and I prepared to fly. In five minutes, then, I'll have the car just outside the yard gate. I'll run her out while the music's going, said Mr. Purvis. And I heard Chloe's voice, quite carefree by now, reply, Right-o! I ran into Joe's and Chloe's room and stood thinking for a moment. Should I tell Chloe I had heard? Tell Joe? Speak to Maurice Purvis himself? Chloe would probably turn obstinate, and Joe and I could hardly lock her up. As these thoughts flew through my head, I caught sight of a cluster of golden curls lying on the dressing table and an idea came to me. They were Chloe's curls. In fact, they had once grown on her head, and were the result of a year's combings, saved up in a pink shoe-bag, and then confided to the tender care of a hairdresser. Chloe had not needed them to-night under the Napoleonic hat, and when I had locked the bedroom door I seized them and pinned them on behind one ear pulling them forward so that they lay on my shoulder as though they had come down. Then I substituted for my cocked hat a blue motor bonnet, swathed in masses of blue-gray chiffon that I knew belonged to Chloe, and tying on my mask again I slipped on the big fur coat Joe and Chloe shared between them. As I did so, I caught sight of Mrs. Murdoch's book on the ottoman. I must have put it down there when I came straight into Joe's room on my return. Nothing would be more natural than for any one of our guests, who left their cloaks there, to glance into it, and, shocked at my own carelessness, I stuffed it into the pocket of the fur coat. I was ready but at that moment the door-handle was first turned, then vigorously rattled. "'Who's there?' I called. "'Oh, bother!' said a voice. "'Chloe's.' "'What do you want?' I asked. "'I want to come in. What are you doing?' "'Me? Oh, I'm lying down. I've got a headache. Do you want me?' No, I want to get at some things of mine. Can I find them for you? Er, no, you wouldn't know where they are. If you've a headache, hadn't you better lie down in your own room? It's quieter. I suppose it is. Oh, Chloe, will you just find Peter and tell him I can't play any more tonight? There's an angel. I waited till her footsteps died away then turning out the lamp and putting the matches in my pocket to delay her yet further. I crept down the ladder. Across the yard I ran, keeping in the shadow of the house, and at the gate I found the car and Morris Purvis. Good girl, he said. You're under the five minutes. Quick, I muttered, apparently very out of breath, 
as I took my place in the car, a low grey touring car, with a torpedo body and bucket seats. With a throb of relief I saw by her steeply angled bonnet that she was a flag, the one make of car with which I am thoroughly at home, and the discovery made me feel less powerless. As Morris Purvis tucked the rug in round me, I leaned a little forward so that the fair curls caught the light from a street lamp. He touched them gently. Golden locks, he said. Idiot, I thought, but all I did was to draw back petulantly, as I knew Chloe would have done. For I was sure Morris Purvis had never touched her like that before. This was what her consent to his plan was already bringing to pass. He laughed a little, then took his place beside me, and I said to myself as I saw the movement of his foot that started us, that I might have cause to be glad that this car was fitted with a self-starting device. We were off, down the still road, where moonlight and lamplight mingled together and shadows of varying degrees of darkness and semi-transparency lay across each other. Under each lamp the shadow of its own framework looked like a great motionless spider on the pavement. We swung round the corner and I leant back and drew a deep sigh of relief. Glad to get away unchallenged, said my companion, with a touch of triumph very naturally misinterpreting the nature of my relief. I looked away from him and drew myself up a little as though a trifle offended, and he was quick to take his cue. I won't bother you with talk, Chloe, if you'd rather not. We'll just enjoy the moonlight and pretend things. And you shall tell me you're glad you came when you see the river. Will you? Do you think, Chloe?" I gave a very good imitation of a gurgling sound with which Chloe expresses pleased agreement, and we sped on. I admit that if it had not been for worrying I should have enjoyed the ride very much, for in that clear night air, with the clean rush of it in one's face, Morris Purvis became a mere figurehead whose existence it would have been easy to forget. But I was somewhat perturbed, because though it is easy enough to take one's own adventures in a happy-go-lucky way, in fact that's the only way to take them, one can't extend the same carelessness to other people's affairs. Also I hate meddling in business where I don't belong to be. Giving advice is bad enough but when it comes to doing things for a person without her knowledge or permission, I confess I don't like it at all. And if it transpired that Mr. Purvis really had no idea in his head beyond an innocent run to Kew and back, Chloe would quite justly be angry with me for having made a fool of her. Yet suppose there were more to it than that. Of deliberate badness I didn't suspect Morris Purvis, because men as a rule don't want to land themselves in a difficult position. But suppose with Chloe once under his care he lost his head and grew reckless, 
It would mean a terrible fright for Chloe, if not a silly scandal, which the knowledge Jo and I had of her innocence would not allay. It seemed to me I had done right, but by now I was almost too tired to think. And when, once past Shepherd's Bush, we had the road to ourselves, and the car ate it up at well over the legal speed, I lay back in drowsy silence. Past Turnham Green, where the church so curiously thin in quality by day, as though made of pasteboard, attained a certain kind of Christmas card effectiveness in the moonlight. Past the ugly basemented houses. Past still unbuilt on nursery gardens and glass houses that glimmered like water and then past Kew Bridge, leaving it on our left. I touched Morris Purvis' arm in protest, but he only put his foot on the accelerator. We may just as well go on for a bit this way, he said in my ear. We've taken less time than I thought we should, and it's a ripping run once through Brentford. We'll go round by Twickenham and Hampton Court, and home through Richmond and Kew. I sat back again, helpless rage in my heart, and we ran through the narrow high street of Brentford, where the air was laden with gas, and the huge gasometers loomed up darkly through the night. Every now and then we passed a gap in the houses on our left, and caught a glimpse of sparkling river with beds of rushes standing up into the moonlight, or willow branches drooping greyly. We rushed on over the canal bridges, just catching a glimpse of the great flat barges moored side by side. On and on we went, past Sion House, the lion's straightly stuck-out tail looking more unyielding than ever and then we came to Bush Corner, and to my intense relief swung round it. My vague anxiety allayed, I let myself give way to the sleepiness that was growing stronger and stronger. It was a mere film of sleep at first, through which I was conscious of outward things, of the great blocks of Isleworth Infirmary, and more ranks of glass-houses. Then my head nodded lower and lower, and I slept. We were running through open country and the dark glimmer of early dawn when I awoke. For the first moment or so I remembered nothing, and thought how pleasant it was to wake up in that rush of air, and with trees and sky around. Then, as it all crowded back to me, I cried out in anger. "'Oh, what are you doing? Where are we going?' I cried. "'On and on,' he replied, laughing. But there was a tenseness in his voice. "'Chloe, little Chloe, when we started I did mean to take you back, but I can't. "'Where are we going?' "'To the moon.' To the edge of the world. Mingled with my thankfulness that it was not Chloe who was with him, 
was a queer little relief that after all I had not made a mountain out of a mole-heap. But both feelings were quickly swallowed up in sheer rage. To think that this man, this Londoner, so different from the only painters I had ever known, who were all straight, kindly country folk, that he should dare to embroil me, Viv Lovell, in this kind of affair. Perhaps I was illogical, as I suppose the embroilment was my own doing. But that did not save him, who would have played this trick on Chloe, any wrath of mine. That I, whose adventures had all been wholesome, and great fun when one had lived through them, should be plunged into any kind of affair with a being who was melodramatic and penny novelettian. I took off my mask and folded back my chiffon veil. Since you are going in for heroics, Mr. Purvis, said I, let me remark that this farce has gone on long enough. Unhand me. End of chapter 17